Hallelujah. Good morning. Well, I'm glad to see you this morning. It is quite quite the weather we're having, quite the time we're having. If it's not COVID, it's something else. <laughs> but thank you for, for coming this morning. And I do understand the concerns and the the practicality of the heat. We do need to be careful. We need to be aware. But at the same time, I thank God that we're able to to be able to get out. And uh, I think there's a lot of baptisms happening today. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the kids. Apparently, Pastor Daniel said, that there's a there's a petition going around for me to do the slip and slide after church. So, so that, but but I think it has to follow with some dollar signs or something like that. So, so I'm open to it. I'm open to it. I'm just I don't want a Big Mac. I'd rather have a nice steak out of it. So, uh, see, Daniel knows what he'd give, but I'm asking for more. Amen. Is God good? I have found I have found that he is the one strong, sure foundation. When everything else switches, moves, changes, gets altered, gets revised, gets updated, he still is God 1.0. He doesn't need updating. He doesn't need a reboot. You and I might need it, but he doesn't. And I'm so thankful that we can come back to him. I say come back to him because sometimes I think we tend to think we can handle it. Or we forget just how good and how powerful and how strong he is. He is the answer. He is the answer. I want to talk a little bit this morning about the early church. We've been talking about the power of God. And I want to spend a couple weeks talking about the dynamic power of God. We've talked a lot about the practical parts of the power of God. The power of God is amazing. It's practical and it's dynamic. It's natural and it's supernatural. The power of God can help you naturally, but the power of God can also help you supernaturally. One of the aspects of the power of God is that it helps you live a morally pure life. To me, that's practical, but I've also found it to be sometimes very supernatural. But if you're struggling with something, don't just get help from people, get help from Holy Spirit. And he can give you the power to overcome those things that maybe overcome you. So this morning, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the supernatural dynamic power of God. But what I want to do is I want to look at it in the dynamics of the early church. 
And in Acts 1, I want to read the first six or seven verses to you because as I was reading it, I've, I've read this passage. We've had this passage many, many times uh, read to us, ministered, preached, proclaimed. What I'd like to do today is I just want to take a little bit of a different look at it in the aspect of the disciples. They had been with Jesus for three and a half years. And the whole time that he was with them, he was showing them a new, better way to live. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the kingdom principles. And they have said this, but I say. And what he did was he attacked the mindset of the day and said, no, this is what the kingdom says. This is what the kingdom is about. This is what the kingdom rule and reign is. He has spent three and a half years. Then he dies, crucified, rises again. And it says in Acts 1 that he spent 40 days with them, showing them infallible proof of who he was and talking to them about the kingdom. So I just want to read that. I want you to think about that as I read this. And if we can today, picture yourself as a disciple sitting there listening to him as he has shared. Take, just try to, to imagine what it would be like. So that's kind of my backdrop as I share this morning. In Acts 1, verse 1. By the way, the word Theophilus actually means lover of God. And some theologians think that maybe Luke, who wrote Luke and he wrote Acts, some people think he wasn't necessarily addressing one person so much as he was addressing lovers of God. So an interesting thought. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach in Luke until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To those he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. So for 40 days he spends with them. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which Jesus had said, you have heard from him from me. So you've heard of what the Father has promised from me. So Jesus had said, listen, what's coming, I've told you about. I want you to picture this. Jesus is saying, guys, I'm leaving, and it's good for me that I go, because for me to go, then the Holy Spirit can come, the Comforter, in John 14, 15, 16, 17, where he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, so he says, I want you to wait for what the Father has promised, which you've heard of from me. 
For John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, so he's telling them all these things. Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, says God in bodily form. He took on the form of man, but it was God in the form of man. I mean, just, I can't, that, that's just amazing. And he says, now listen, I want you to wait. John baptized with you with water. You saw that, but I've got something that I want to baptize you with, and that's the Holy Spirit. That's me. Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're three in one, three distinct, but three inseparable. I can't figure it all out. But he says, listen, you, you've got to stay and you've got to wait. He says, and so when they came, and then listen to what the disciples do. And this part gets me kind of chuckling because I'll be honest with you, I'd probably be right there with them. If I could just be honest with you. Some of us are holier than others and we go, no, no, I'd be waiting for the Holy Spirit. But I think there's some of us that we go, God, could you just right every wrong that's happened to us as a people? As a race? As a country? As a nation? You've been here. This nation is yours. So when they came together, they were asking him. It didn't say they asked him. They were asking. It sounds like this may have come up more than just one time. One of the passages I read from as I was studying says they were continually, regularly asking him, is now where you're going to restore the kingdom? He just was with them for three years, three and a half years, talking to them about the kingdom, describing the difference of the kingdom compared to what they were living. I, I want us to understand this, because sometimes I think the power of God, the display of Pentecost, the display of the power of God means everything's figured out. I'm here to tell you, he was dealing with people that still couldn't figure it out. They were waiting for him to come in his power and restore and right all the wrongs. And they came to him and he says, is this now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive. And what I found interesting was they were asking for one thing, for him to restore the power, restore the kingdom, restore that in all its glory. And he says, it's not for you to know the times, but you will receive. In other words, he was saying, you're looking for this, parents. Have you ever had a conversation with your child? They come to you, say, I want this, this, and this. And you look at it and go, ah, but there's something better. And you've come to me asking for that, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost 
has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, I've read that passage hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. And as I was studying this morning or this week, I'm asking God for a display of his power. And you know how that's going to come? That's going to come through me and through you. And there have been times when I've asked God to rectify and change and to establish what he wants. And God was saying to the disciples, they came to him and said, Now, listen, you've been with us for three and a half years, Jesus. I know you're going away. So is the going away present going to be restoring the kingdom like it should be? And he goes, No. But you will receive power. You thought the power would be found in what God would do with restoring. And he says, no, the power is found in what God will do in you. And I sat there trying to imagine this conversation. And quite honestly, if, if, if I was to be honest, I probably would have been with the disciples saying, are you going to restore the kingdom now? I mean, we've got the book of Acts, so we go, well, yeah, but no, I would have been saying, where's, where's the upper room? Get me to the upper room. Come on, I'm all for the upper room. But I don't see one disciple saying, let's go to the upper room, but I see the disciples saying, are you going to restore this? I want to give you a few thoughts about the power of God from the perspective of how the disciples, you and I, look it through. First of all, they thought it was power to right a wrong, and he said, no, it's power to right a relationship. Power of God. I want us to understand and see the power of God a little differently today. Because sometimes I have found in my conversations with believers is we are expecting God to do something, and God is saying, no, I've given you what you need to do what you need to do. And the disciples, I thank, I thank God for the disciples that they weren't perfect. I thank God that there was Peter. I thank God that there was John and James the sons of thunder who wanted to just destroy, just destroy a whole city and just say, God, just throw fire down. I thank God that they were real and that they weren't perfect. That gives you and I hope. Because I have found that there are things that trigger me when I'm driving my car. I have found there's things that trigger me when people ask me something that I've already told them what's going to happen. I have found there's things that trigger me. And the disciples, I thank God, there were things that triggered them. It sounds like they had this complex that they wanted to know who was going to be better than the other. It even got to the point where two of them went to their mom and said, hey, can you kind of be nice to Jesus and then find out if he'll put me and my brother right beside him in heaven? 
Can you imagine if you were a group of 12 of you and you found out two guys were trying to get the top dog position? That's, that is the disciples. They were not perfect. Peter, after getting filled with the Holy Ghost, Paul confronts him because Peter acted one way when he was not around the Jews, and when he was around the Jews, he acted a different way. And Paul says, hey guys, this isn't right. David, a man after God's own heart, messed up. Abraham, the father of faith, lied. His wife was so beautiful, he says, listen, I don't want them to kill me because you're so beautiful. What a guy. So he says, I want you to tell them you're my sister. We're going to give them a white lie because technically I can do that. And, and, the, and the king gets confronted by God and says, don't you dare touch her. And he goes, whoa. Jacob, liar, deceiver, is the father of 12 tribes. Jonah preaches an amazing message. I mean, he preaches. He just says, listen, guys, shape up or you're going to die and this whole area is going to be desecrated in 40 days. What does he do? He goes out in weather like this and find God gives him a, a tree to grow up and to give him shade. And he sits there and I would sit there under the shade. And then a worm comes and destroys the tree and he gets angry and he says, oh, just kill me. And God says, what are you doing here? Don't you know about my mercy? Elijah has this amazing thing where it kills 300 prophets. And then the king's wife, queen, says, I'm going to kill you. And what does he do? He runs away in fear. Sometimes I think we have to be perfect. I'm here to tell you, no, you don't have to be perfect. And by the way, none of us is. I'd be the closest to it, by the way. We are not perfect. And the disciples here, I, I just looked, they just spent three years, 40 days of intensive time with Jesus, where it says that he was telling them about the kingdom of God and what was going to happen and the power of the Holy Spirit. He spent 40 days. He says, I get 40 days with them. I'm going to make it count. And at the end of 40 days, they go, so. Are you going to restore the kingdom and are you going to give us back everything that we've lost because of these other nations? They completely missed it. And what does he say? You're looking for power like this. I've got power like this. What God's got for you and I is better than what you and I think we need. What God had for them was greater than what they wanted for themselves. I want you to see something. Even in their imperfection, he gave them instruction. He told them to go, not to leave Jerusalem. So he says, I want you to go. I want you to gather together and stay in Jerusalem. And I want you to wait for what's been promised. And they went and they obeyed. There's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. 
And even in their imperfections, they did obey. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for obedience. A disciple is a learner and a follower. A disciple is somebody who says, I will obey, because that's what following is about. Following is about, no, it's not me, it's what the boss says. Following is not about, well, I get to do whatever I want. Following is, no, there's a law that is greater than what I'd like to do, and I will submit to that. Do you know I have found there are times when I didn't want to do what was right? And I could find five, six, seven reasons why not to. And in today's day and age, we somehow have elevated human reasoning to think that it's better than God's reasoning. And we have believers, if I could use that term, that justify our actions, our reactions, and our opinions, and we have them elevated higher than God's word. And obedience is a commodity that is sorely lacking in our body. I mean, who am I as a pastor to tell you to obey God's word? That's a reaction people would have. I see it. I hear it. I don't say this lightly, but I am here to instruct you in God's word. And God's word says, obey what I say. It's not because of what I've said. It's because of his word. And I have had to do that. And the disciples, they went and they obeyed. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for willing and obedient people. I found it interesting. His instruction was, wait, because you're going to hear what has been promised and what I've spoken to you. God will speak to you and tell you what he has for you. And you find it in here. These are the words of life. I would much rather talk to somebody who takes God's word and says, God, word, God your word says this and I'm going to believe for it and get it wrong than somebody who does not take God's word and then blame it on God. I've taken God's word, I've spoken his promises, and it hasn't turned out the way I thought. I'm not giving up. I put a key in a car. I don't understand how a car operates, but I'll get in the car the next day and I'll turn it on again. And I've learned that to obey God is better than any other way of reasoning, logic, or higher thinking that we can come up with. And they went and obeyed, and God says, I want you, Jesus says, I want you to go from what I've told you about. For John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that word baptism, or baptized, actually, it means immersion, but it also has a picture associated with it, where in those days they would take a fabric, and they would dip it into the water, and the water would actually come up the fabric, and they refer to that as wicking, 
And you can actually put fabric into water, and that water would then come up the fabric, and that fabric would be totally encased or saturated. They would dye clothes that way. And they would put them in there, and the fabric would, would suck up the water, suck up the wine, suck up whatever that, that liquid was. And what he was saying is, listen, guys, I want you to get baptized and actually have so the Holy Spirit comes and he saturates you. This is the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. A life that is totally surrendered. You are 100% 100 who you are and yet 100% God who you are. God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to change your personality. He's created you the way you are. Now, he doesn't want things that are not holy and not good and not just. But if he's given you a great sense of humor, he wants to make that even better, sanctified. If he's given you a certain way of thinking, he wants to make that better and sanctified. And he wants to get rid of those things that don't line up with his word. And what that is, is that's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's the cloth, the fabric, touching the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit coming and saturating, baptizing, immersing in that fabric or in that material. And he says, you've seen what baptism looks like with John where they are completely immersed and come up. He says, now I want you to be completely immersed in the Holy Spirit. I find that challenging. If I can be honest with you, I have had to learn how to discipline my thoughts because if I don't discipline my thoughts, they run crazy and they run wild and they don't run with the Holy Spirit's thought pattern. You say, oh, you're, really? Well, if you're married, you've probably had conversations where the Holy Spirit said, don't say that. And you're like, nope, she deserves it. No, he deserves it. No, I'm just defending my turf. Those are moments when the baptism of the Holy Spirit can do something supernatural. He can change the think and the what you want to say. And everybody said, amen. He wants you to be fully immersed. And what happens when you're fully immersed? It gets a little risky. Because if you go to chapter 2, they were fully immersed in the Holy Spirit and people thought they were drunk. People thought that what is going on? They've had wine and it's too early in the day. They had people speaking their language that didn't speak their language, talking about the goodness of God, and they're going, something is happening here. It becomes risky when you have the Holy Spirit, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit on you, because what happens? It can lead to misunderstanding. And I think in today's day and age, we don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to offend anybody. And sometimes I think, no, we just need to offend somebody. Now, I'm not saying we run around looking for somebody to offend. I'm not saying we poke our head in the church and go, oh, I think I'm going to wear shorts today just to offend somebody. We're not doing that. 
But God offended their thinking in order to cause an opportunity to put his thinking in them. He says, you guys think the power is all about restoring, but I'm telling you the power is all about being filled. So when I'm talking this morning about the power of the Holy Spirit, the challenge that I'm putting out to you today is to think differently. Instead of thinking, God, what are you going to do to rectify this situation? Maybe we think and say, God, what have you already placed inside of me that can overcome this situation? What supernatural thing have you placed inside of me that can overcome morally, that can overcome with purity, that can overcome with goodness, that can overcome with righteousness? What have you already placed inside of me through the gift of the Holy Spirit that I can now overcome? And instead of asking you to smite that whole nation, I have to say, no, what have you put inside of me, God, that I need to let come out of me and to live in me? Anybody hearing what I'm saying this morning? It gets messy. When God moves, it's going to challenge your mind and your concepts. I've got a few things here about risk. No risk means you stay still and you don't move. If you say, I don't want risk, you stay in your comfort zone. And I'm here to tell you that if you live in your comfort zone, you never will increase. You will never get beyond that because you're going to stay in that nest. Risk involves getting out of your comfort zone. It involves misunderstanding. It involves learning. It involves success and it involves failure. Be ready to make a mistake saying I'm walking with the Holy Spirit. You say, what do you mean? Why? Because whenever the move of God happens, there's also a move of the flesh. Whenever the move of God happens, there's always, you know what, I figured this out, and now we're going to do it this way. It happens. God, you don't have to say, I've already, I saw it last week, you did it this way, so we're going to do it this way. And God says, no, I want to do it a different way today. There's going to be failure. But I'd rather see someone trusting God, being obedient to the Holy Spirit, making a mistake than somebody sitting in their nest and taking fire and flames and throwing them at people. And I see that in social media all the time. Are we going to get it 100% right? No, we're not. But this is a house of risk. This is a house where it says, you know what? Okay, God's speaking. Um, I believe this is what's going to happen. This is what he wants to do. And you know what? The more you do that, the better you get at it. You will make risks, but if you're prepared to take a risk, you are also prepared to see a success or a step forward. Risk involves human influence in spiritual movement, but it also risk also involves spiritual influence in human movement. I have found, as I've watched babies learn how to walk, they're balanced, but when they stay balanced, they don't move. 
If they stay balanced, they stay there. But what they do is they take a step and all of a sudden they get out of balance and they have to put their foot down. And when they put one foot down, they start to move. And sometimes risk involves an imbalance. Now, I love balance. It says let everything be done in decency and in order. But at the same time, I also know that in order for something to happen, there has to be movement. And part of that is discretion or understanding what God is doing when and where and how. And there will be times when God says move, and there's other times when God says stay. And the best way we learn how to do it is by actively pursuing and doing it and taking the risk and learning what it means to take a risk with the Holy Spirit. And the disciples did, and they got mocked, they got misunderstood, but they also had the greatest uh, soul gathering in one time in that day. They took a risk. The power of God. The risk is people saying you're drunk. The people saying you're crazy. And then some of them are going to be religious people. They, they accused Jesus of sitting around drunkards. So this morning... I want to challenge you to be open to living a supernatural life. I want to challenge you to be open to taking a risk this morning. And when you get it wrong, call Pastor Nelson. Because he understands it so much better than I do. But you'll never make an advancement if you don't take a risk. And the disciples here in this passage, they had to risk the comfort and the expectation of God restoring. They had to take the risk to say, okay, God, fill me with your power, and I will be willing, and I'll be obedient, and I will go to Jerusalem, and we will wait and stay for what you're to say. And because of that, God poured out on them in a supernatural way. Next Sunday, I want to ask God to move in a supernatural way. I mean, I ask him all the time. But next Sunday, I want to ask you this week to read Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. If you could read those two chapters this week and see what God did supernaturally when they obeyed and were willing to take a risk. So what are you going to be reading this week? Acts 1 and 2. Acts 1 and 2. And see what powerful things happen when the Holy Spirit comes on the people. Amen? So read Acts 1 and 2. And I'm asking God, I've been, I want his power. I don't want my power. My power, especially in this weather, fizzes out at about 9.30 in the morning. Anybody here want God's power? Anybody here want his practical power? Anybody want his supernatural power? What are you going to do this week? Read Acts 1 and 2 and pray. If I could ask you to do two things, read Acts 1 and 2 and pray. Amen? Let's pray.
and then you can watch me do the slip and slide. But I've got to see some stuff in here. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh boy, that's, that was risky. I can imagine what's going to happen now. Father, I thank you that you are a good father, that you care about us more to move us forward than to let us stay where we're at, that you said to the disciples, I got something better for you. And even though they weren't perfect, and even though we weren't perfect, and even though we misunderstand and they misunderstood, you were committed to doing what you had and to give them what you had, which was you pouring out on us your goodness and your fullness. So, Lord, I ask this week that you would cause us to hunger and thirst after you, that we would actually read Acts 1 and 2, and that you would give us revelation on what it looks like to allow Holy Spirit to come and to change us naturally, practically, and supernaturally. I ask, O God, that you would bless everyone today. Lord, I invoke the name of Jesus on everyone here today. I invoke your name on them. I invoke your blessings on them. I invoke your goodness on them. Lord, so when you see them, God, you will remind them that you see them for what you have done for them, not what they have done. And that they would see your goodness because of who you are. Your precious name, and everybody said, amen.